Hello everyone, you are listening to CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. I'm Dinah Jansen and you are listening to a special episode of The Scoop. Today I'm pleased to present a roundtable on Washington and to welcome from Queen's University, Drs. Paul Gardner and Christian Leuprecht from Political Studies. Amarnath Amarsingham from Political Studies and Religion, and both Dr. Noah Wiseboard and Queen's National Scholar Dr. Ashwini Vasanthakuma from Law to the virtual studio today. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Dinah. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you again for joining us here on CFRC Radio. Now, events have been quickly unfolding in Washington, D.C. the past few days, starting with a joint session at the Capitol to count and verify electoral college votes, apparent incitement by the outgoing President Donald Trump to storm the Capitol building, the actual breach of that building with attendant violence, apparent validation for this violence by the President himself, and uh, culminating in the expected certification of Joe Biden's presidency around 4 a.m. Thursday morning, followed by resignations from various White House staffers, two secretaries from Cabinet, and a call by Nancy Pelosi for Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment or clear the path for impeachment, and President-elect Biden condemning the rioters' actions, calling them domestic terrorists. So a lot has happened over the last couple of days. That is only just a brief summary. We have a lot of ground to cover today, of course, as we're literally watching history unfold here. So perhaps maybe we can just go back to the basics and start with why everyone was at the Capitol in the first place. So, Paul, can we start with you? Break it down for us. What constitutional processes were underway that brought everyone to Washington? And is it typical that a joint session of the House counts electoral college votes? Yeah, thanks for having me. So, so sure, this is a fairly typical procedural part of the electoral college process, right? So the electoral college first begins by people voting within states. In those states, uh, those votes then select electors. Those electors meet in state capitals uh, to select the presidential uh, the, the presidential candidate who wins the votes for that state. And then the process that we were seeing take place was simply the counting of those votes. Uh, that's a process that's taken place relatively uncontroversially for the past 150 years. Uh, but that process is actually governed by the elect, uh, Electoral Act of, Electoral Count Act of 1887, which resulted again after the last sort of problematic presidential election in 1876, when Congress actually deadlocked because three Southern states sent two different slates of electors, right? So the Electoral Count Act of 1887 uh, was meant to allow members of Congress to object to have a specific process to deal with that sort of problem. Uh, however, that's not what we actually saw uh, this past Wednesday, right? There were no, uh, th there were no uh, different slates or competing slates that were being offered here. Mm -hmm. And the Electoral Count Act of 1887 is actually meant to put the onus on the states to resolve their own sort of issues through certification, through things like safe harbor deadlines. Uh, and we didn't actually see that this time around, uh, which makes sort of the objections and uh, the issues that we've seen around the counting, uh, a bit of the, the claims around those were a bit specious this time around. All right. Does anybody else have anything to add related to what Paul has just remarked upon? Uh, I mean, why do you mean a bit specious? It was um, uh, there was multiple tests at the judicial level and at the state level about whether the count was um, corrupted in some way through the counting machines or through some sort of activists. And every answer was no. It's clear that the vote went in favor of Joe Biden. It's clear the number of electoral votes that were won. And President Trump was arguing that his supporters should storm the Capitol on the um, uh, January 6th and stop the steal. So uh, it's interesting to be getting back into the 1800s, but more directly what we have here is um, uh, um, veiled, thinly veiled statements by the president that his supporters should take action, show strength and stop the steal, which is exactly what they did or tried to do. And, and can I add quickly, uh, um, I mean, none of this was shocking, right? I mean, I, I remember sitting in meetings with U.S. government officials as well as NGOs um, well into October, September, basically having event after event and Zoom call after Zoom call about election violence, right? And, and about what we were expecting to happen um, right after the vote in November, but also more importantly, leading up to the inauguration. And so there was a lot of 
discussion in terrorism studies circles and political violence circles and extremism circles, uh, people who study extremism, I mean, <laughs> about uh, what was going to happen and what likely is going to happen given this kind of um, bizarre mix that we started seeing of QAnon supporters, militia groups, uh, far-right neo-Nazi groups um, that were all basically seeing Trump and this kind of moment as very important for them and, and, and massively significant in terms of their movement. And so they weren't going to go quietly into the night at all. And this was kind of obvious getting going into November, December, January. So the ease at which uh, the Capitol was breached, I think, was quite shocking to all of us because we were like, well, you've been talking about this for four months how is there not any preparation for what was obviously um, going to happen? And so, um, yeah, it, it, it was a, it was kind of a shocking moment. I'd say. Trump, I think like Trump really set this up too. Um, there's a little known organization called the electoral assistance commission in the U S that was set up after the, after the 1999, 2000 hanging Chad disaster that was meant to help States resolve these issues that can lead to contentious outcomes. And the Trump administration has intentionally not appointed members to the board of that commission, which has five members on the board. And by virtue of not having a majority, a quorum on the board, it means this commission has not been able to be able to be active or to spend any of the money that's been allocated to Congress. And so Trump has been for years, I think, playing towards intentionally undermining the integrity of the electoral process with the one mechanism that is available in this highly decentralized electoral system to provide some integrity, uniformity to the overall process. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, Noah, Amarnath, and Christian for your comments, and, and to Paul for starting us off here. Appreciate that. Now, we did touch on it a bit a few months ago in the conversation, but perhaps we can turn the conversation more directly now to the question of how a constitutionally protected right to march turned to an illegal and violent breach of the Capitol building. Noah, let's start with you, and perhaps we can hear from Christian and others thereafter. What are, what are your thoughts about what we saw Wednesday afternoon from the president and his followers vis-a-vis -vis incitement and response? Well, none of this started on Wednesday afternoon. We all knew what was coming. We all knew that there was going to be heavily armed Trump supporters congregating in D.C. Uh, Trump had been calling for this on Twitter for, for months already, as everybody knew. Anybody who was following the, the um, uh, um, uh, Trump-supporting um, social media feeds uh, um, knew that there was a rally that was going to look like Charlottesville, uh, or like some of these other Trump rallies in DC, but at a much larger scale. Um, so it was very bizarre to see, uh, instead of having, I think maybe Ashwini will speak about this later, instead mm -hmm. of having three lines of National Guards on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with full riot gear and masks lined up, like when there was the Black Lives Matter protests in DC, uh, you know, it had a very thin a presence of Capitol Police on the steps, some flimsy barricades in the way. Um, uh, so what we had, just to summarize quickly and wrap it up here, was that uh, um, uh, incendiary um, Trump speech, incendiary Rudy Giuliani's speech, Trump's personal lawyer, gave a speech as well, talked about trial by combat. Eric Trump, I believe, spoke, uh, all riling up this crowd that had been prepped beforehand and told that their rights were being trampled on, and they believe that legitimately, uh, um, uh, uh, marching upon the Capitol with a very, very thin police presence. Uh, and, and this is how it all began. Okay, let's hear from Ashwini and maybe Christian. Um, yeah, so I think I just echo, um, so so it, it really, you know, um, there's, there's been this response, which is this is so shocking, you know, this is like unpressed. It, it isn't really shocking because uh, there was a huge build up to this, right? And you didn't have to be, you didn't have to be privy to, um, you know, secret investigations. You just had to follow accounts on Twitter to know that there was this sort of public energy towards having this kind of presence um, at this moment. Um, it's inconceivable that if Black Lives Matter Twitter handles were tweeting some of these things, that you would have had, I think, the really, really, as Noah said, just incredibly flimsy police pro uh, presence um, at the Capitol building. 
Um, and and we, it, this isn't sort of speculative, it's just inconceivable because we know that when there were Black Lives Matter protesters, um, the, the police were happy to use more violence to clear them so that President Trump could have a photo op at a church. Um, when women protested during the hearings of now Justice Kavanaugh, uh, there were arrests, there was much more forceful interventions. Um, so it, there's something sort of remarkable that uh, it, it isn't even that we saw the same level of policing, it's that we saw much less policing for what was clearly a much greater threat, right? So I think there's a real question here about um, what kinds of disgruntled citizens do we indulge um, and what kinds of disgruntled citizens do we see as deep threats against whom sort of incredibly violent means can be used and are sort of seen as justified. Um, so it isn't just, I think that there was a really minimal police presence, but it's interesting to also think about how the police responded to the protesters, right? So um, obviously, you know, I think the, uh, the dust is still settling, but there are selfies, um, clearly, uh, these individuals were sort of taking photos of themselves in various Senate offices. Um, all of this, again, I think, just shows not just that there was a flimsy police presence, but that there was this really kind of indulgent attitude um, towards these Trump supporters. Um, and I think some of this kind of uh, follows through in, in how even some of the media have portrayed. Um, so we're sort of ridiculing them, you know, they're wearing costumes. Um, you know, I think we've all seen the image of the man with I, the bear costume. I, it's unclear to me what that is. Um, and so there's this real sort of, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters uh, are taken as sort of really serious threats. Um, what is actually a really serious threat to sort of democratic institutions is laughed off or indulged, right? And I think this really is reflected in President Trump's initial remarks, which is, you know, we understand your pain, uh, you're blowing off steam, some sort of demented version of boys will be boys. Um, and I just think that's a really, it's just really striking um, and, and sort of obvious as well. So there's not even a pretense of treating things equally. I think right. I think at the local um, I think at the local law enforcement level um, there yeah I, I mean I agree wholeheartedly with that with what Ashwini was saying is that we know that the FBI takes the far right quite seriously ever since the Oklahoma City bombing right they've infiltrated uh, there's there's been groups of 13 guys in Georgia and one of them was an FBI agent right and so we know that on the FBI level they're taking this threat quite seriously but at the local level local policing level um yeah there is there was this kind of approach where um because of the nature of the movement because they were you know QAnon is talking about uh Demo the democrats um you know engaging in uh, child trafficking and all of these kind of bizarre ideas that it, they were largely dismissed as just a bunch of crazy people that we don't have to worry about from a policing perspective, right? And 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 so they they kind of didn't anticipate that um, it would turn violent in the way that it did, which again is quite shocking um, if you had paid any attention to um, Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts, uh, Parley uh, accounts, and so on, which they were quite openly talking about um, having having a moment of, of violence uh, on, on the 6th. Um, but I think I do think from the local policing perspective, they, um, because largely these were white protesters um, with MAGA hats, they weren't really taken as seriously as this kind of other that was um, that was being portrayed. So if they were Muslims, if they were Black Lives Matter protesters, I think the, uh, and we know that the response has been and would have been quite different, um, they pr wouldn't have even made it past the fence, let alone uh, been able to break windows and sit at Nancy Pelosi's desk. So, so on that note, we know that D Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bauer mobilized the National Guard presence ahead of the joint session. And following events in the Capitol building, she called for investigation into security failures, while Nancy Pelosi outright asked for the police chief's resignation. In your opinion, did the police fail and in what ways? I'm not sure exactly. I don't think we have fully. I believe the police chief has resigned at this point. Okay. Um, so that's happened already. Um, and I believe there was some interference by the White House where certain steps that the Capitol Police had intended to take uh, were blocked. 
uh, but I need to read more carefully, maybe, or unless somebody else on the panel well, what, knows. Uh, the, the, the senators and, and representatives who were inside the Capitol were um, calling around, getting trying to get the National Guard mobilized. But so the National Guard made it to the kind of outskirts of Washington, which is federal land uh, or, or state land, and, and were then stopped until there was approval by the defense, acting defense secretary and the vice president. Um, which, and the, so the president kind of put a stop to the mobilization and it was, I think an hour or so went by before he finally said, okay. Um, and so that's why you had kind of a late response to what was, what was happening. So, I mean, considering like this could have ended a lot worse, right? With actual members of, uh, I was going to say members of parliament with actual uh, government officials killed, um, you know, uh, much more civilian casualties and so on. But we're, we're lucky in a way that um, it was there weren't more casualties given the kind of delayed response that we saw. All right. It's probably a good place to kind of, like to think about how we're framing this. So I think Amar's point is really important that whoever the incident commander was realized that they were overwhelmed and so that you know that nobody needs to die here today unfortunately one person did die but i think that in this whole mayhem only one person lost their life due to the numbers um, due to physical intervention and one police officer Mm -hmm. Um, yeah like so so these are i mean there was a there was a lot of violence but i think overall this could have ended much worse so i think it does talk to the, the professionalism of people on the ground um, in uniform of trying to handle um, an impossible situation. But I think there's a, there's a broader context, right? So the rule of law, uh, I mean, we have two law professors here who'll know this much better than I do, but the rule of law in a democracy is supposed to apply equally to all citizens. And I think one of certainly the perceptions, if not the reality is in the contrast that we talked about between the summer and now is that their real concerns about how the rule of law applies to different individuals in the United States. And that's the manifestation of that. And of course, when you have people with impunity, as we, as, as my colleagues have so nicely pointed out, uh, wandering through the Capitol without masks, without trying to hide, it clearly is an indication that uh, complete disregard for the rule of law or that the rule of law is not going to get me. So I have nothing to worry about regardless of what I do. So the question then is, so, so how could we have gotten to what I think is, a, is this intelligence failure ultimately in terms of preparation? And here's my guess is what happened. That the Trump rallies, as objectionable as people's views are, and as much as they carry openly or so and so forth, by and large, the Trump rallies have been surprisingly relatively peaceful in terms of, I think, the way they've made their opposition known. Um, so I want to kind of bracket like Charlottetown and stuff, because I don't think that was uh, like Charlottesville, because that wasn't, I think, explicitly a Trump rally. Um, now, of course, there's lots of people there who uh, who advocate violence and so forth. But I think what people in the summer looked at uh, from an from an intelligence assessment side is some of the violence that was being perpetrated in U.S. cities at the time. And so they arrived at the conclusion there was likely a high prospect for violence. What's puzzling this time around is that I think people just went by, well, by and large, the Trump rally sort of has been reasonably subdued. So I think they really didn't anticipate the sort of violence that they saw. And so I think what the, what the commission that I hope we're going to get is going to need to look into is the sort of point that Amar makes about given that this was widely advertised as getting out of hand, how could the intelligence assessment have been ultimately so flawed? And why I think ultimately gets us back to the Christchurch shooting, that there's still, I think, this perception that there are some certain religious and ethnic groups that are more likely to be associated with violence. And if it's white folks or alt-right or something like that, it's localized, but it's not a global type movement. So it presents less of a threat. And so I think it's an indication that, yes, we can talk about this, this type of political violence as a threat, but I'm not sure it's entirely sunk into the intelligence community in terms of how they generate their intelligence assessments. And that's how we got the failure that we did. Well, I think My what's hypothesis. happening is they're, they're blinded by um, these intelligence communities are blinded by a form of American exceptionalism that doesn't allow them to look abroad and to see how sectarian violence actually culminates. Ashwini also is a 
aware of how this happens. There's a similar pattern that always takes place, which we see taking place now in the United States. You have these kind of incendiary speeches with illusions going on. Um, you have an um, a, um, elevation of violence and strength. You have a single leader that is getting control of a mob. You have these minor tests you know, uh, along the fringes. And then it may be embraced centrally as a um, precept of the movement, or it may be rejected. But you have test massacres often that are happening. It doesn't all happen at once. You don't get in from you know, you know, peace to Rwanda all at once. So what I'm most concerned about from, if we're talking about framing the situation, what should we take from this thing that happened uh, two days ago, um, is that now uh, political violence uh, has been injected um, decisively to great effect into American political culture. It's now at play. And that's the new chip that is going to be uh, moved around. I'm concerned is going to be moved around. The other, and, yeah, sorry, know. go ahead. No, so no. I think just to um, follow up with what Noah said, um, I mean, yeah, I think it's really important to think about framing this. So I, I, I am not inclined to think how lucky are we that not more people died. Um, I'm also not sure that this is purely an intelligence failure because it also seems as though there was a lack of will to respond to what seemed like a clear threat. And I think even if, um, and I, you know, I, um, I would be surprised that somebody thought, you know, if, if the intelligence community thought that Trump rallies and Trump supporters did not seem like they might be hotbeds of potential violence. Um, I think that's beside the point. The point is that um, we should not have senators um, and uh, hiding under desks because we should, ensure the security of the building of government. So it doesn't matter that the security breach is coming from someone that we think is ridiculous. The point is that there shouldn't have been that security breach. Um, there was plenty of warning that there was potentially going to be a security breach. Um, so I don't think this is simply a question of a failure of intelligence. Um, I think this is also a, 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 an unwillingness to respond in a sensible way to a clear threat. Um, in this case, simply the threat of breaching the building, right? So this isn't even, do we think that they're going to do violence? This is just, I mean, basic protection of, um, of, of government buildings. It's, it's not actually, it doesn't even require, I think, um, some great level of threat assessment. Um, and, you know, I think, so absolutely, um, as Amarnath said earlier, you know, I think uh, there are sort of lots of different levels of policing. Um, part of what makes this difficult is that, of course, there are sort of very sort of this local, this state, this federal, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, we're still sort of figuring out exactly what happened. Uh, and so why is it that certain things didn't kick in? Who made certain calls? And I think some of that is still being uncovered, right? So I think it would be, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm sort of keen to justify or excuse certain bodies already because I just don't think we, we know um, exactly what the timeline was. Sorry, I, I would just add a footnote to that. I mean, I, I don't think those are two separate things, right? I think the lack of will is very much related to the failure of intelligence. And what I mean by that is because the threat is so nebulous, because the threat um, looks a certain way, they didn't take it seriously. It didn't look like Al-Qaeda. It wasn't a hierarchical organization. QAnon is not a hierarchical organization. The, most of these militia groups are nebulous and, and very dispersed. They're not um, controlled by one person, um, uh, you know, et cetera. And so because the kind of post 9-11 security apparatus is very much primed to see Al-Qaeda, ISIS-related threats as the norm, or as the only way threats will look like, they're much more likely to miss things like militia groups, QAnon, um, uh, you know, Boogaloo groups, um, you know, th those kinds of things, because then because it doesn't it doesn't fit within what they consider to be the threat, right? What the threat is going to look like? It's going to be hierarchical. It's going to be organizational. They're going to have nice media apparatus. They're going to put out all kinds of content. Um, and so, if we don't see that, well, these guys are just a bunch of wackos, then you know, the, not, not people that we need to really take seriously. And so I think the, the, the lack of training about the new, what the new threats are going to look like feeds into this kind of intelligence failure um, that, that we saw happen on the 6th. Um, and, and I would say, like I said before, I think the FBI is well-versed in that, but the local police really aren't, right? And, and so for them, um, uh, for them to see 
a bunch of guys in animal pelts uh, screaming about uh, the you know secret underground bases in the Swiss Alps is not it's not going to register as a threat in the same way, um, and and so why why take measures? They're just going to come scream about weird uh, pedophilia rings and go home, right? Um, but this goes back, I think, to your point, Amar, that the local police responded to Black Lives Matter, which is also yeah. horizontally organized. There isn't a hierarchy um, in a very different way, right? So, um, so I think so. That's fair, yeah. Um, so, so there again, you know. Um, there was a very different response. Um, and I think it's, as Amar already sort of pointed out, it's worth sort of reflecting on why that would be, right? But we need to be careful about talking about these different types of police, right? When we talk about local police, it looks like Washington DC police was adequately postured in terms yeah. of resourcing and staffing. It looks like Capitol police didn't have the reinforcement that they required. And the reinforcement created a real predicament. Because of course, if you remember just a few days ago, we had all 10 living former chiefs of the defense, including ones appointed by Trump, warning about Trump's potential use of the military for political purposes. Yeah. And there was, of course, in the summer, there was deliberate resistance to a Trump request to bring out the National Guard to do his dirty work on Lafayette Square in front of the White House. And so I think there was real apprehension because there were 340 guardsmen deployed, but to do traffic control sort of at intersections and blocking off the areas. And I think there was real apprehension about bringing in the guard because the guard ultimately could fall under Trump's command and control uh, apparatus. And so what might Trump do with the guard? So in the summer, they didn't deploy the guard and DOD had to resist the deployment of the guard. Now I think there was apprehension about bringing in the guard because I think there was concern it might cause more conflagration if Trump then intervenes as the chief of, uh, as, 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 as the commander in chief in that chain of command. And so I think Washington police said, look, this is not, you know, not my monkey, not my circus, like capital, that's your problem. And you have a political problem that you guys created. You need to figure it out. You have ample law enforcement assets. You dispatch those law enforcement assets across the country to cause havoc in places like Portland over the summer. So you guys figure that one out. And there was no one there, I think, ultimately to help Capitol Police. And that's where I think there was a fantastic coordination failure. That was a result, I think, of a flawed intelligence assessment that would have determined the posture uh, of law enforcement agencies on this to begin with. But that's just my reading. Mm -hmm. uh, Noah, Paul, we haven't heard from you in a while. What do you think? Yeah, back to Christian's framing issue, which is a very good question. Look at what we're discussing within all these details of the um, police response and the institutional division of powers. Um, what we're discussing is an object lesson in politics and the place of violence in politics. And what we've seen on uh, um, two days ago um, was that politics is undergirded ultimately by violence. Uh, we've seen this as in as raw a way as possible. And the meaning that Americans ascribe to this violence going forward is going to determine, determine the future of uh, what gets done. I mean, is this the final convulsion of Trumpism? Is that what we're seeing? Or is just this just the end of the beginning? Uh, is the pendulum of history swinging predictably from right to left, gently moderated by Joe Biden's victory? Is that what we're seeing? Perhaps we're seeing a paradigmatic shift in politics due to the unprecedented social media environment that's siloed. Maybe Trump is the inoculation against the um, next autocrat waiting in the wings. So I'm kind of interested in your guys' take on those larger questions about framing this moment. So I feel like we're going to hear arguments about how American institutions worked, right? So that what is, what was an attempt sort of at insurrection failed and that various Republican attempts to overturn the election failed. But I think that's the wrong framing to have around this, right? So when we think about what I think this should alert people to is the extent to which American government is really built on various sorts of norms and parchment barriers that are going to be effective insofar as sort of both voters and elites and governments are dedicated to upholding them, right? I, I think the lessons that are going to be learned from this are not that sort of, uh, you know, Trump is the test here and we've overcome it, but rather that 
uh, Republican politicians are likely to learn that maybe if the election were just a little bit closer, that some of these attempts would have to overturn the election would be successful, right? We're just seeing the, the weakness of some of those norms and institutions of American constitutional government uh, rather than the strength of them. All right, Ashwini, did you have a final thought on that? Um, yeah, no, I, I sort of really um, uh, agree with, with everything that Paul has said. Um, you know, and I, I just add that I don't think this is unique to America. I think uh, sort of sitting in Canada, it's very uh, tempting to, to always point to the U.S. as, um, you know, the, the messy place. But I think actually part of what um, the last four years at least have revealed is just how easily wow. norms are eroded, right? So... Um, and I, and I think that that's a warning for sort of democracies everywhere, which is, you know, there's a, there's a breach of a norm and then the responses don't overreact. It's not such a big deal. Um, and then very easily it becomes normalized in a way that that's really hard to sort of claw back. Right. So, um, so not that, you know, I want to suggest that the Obama presidency was some sort of height of justice and democracy, but the, sorry, I have a dog. The question is, you know, are we able, like, can we conceive of getting back to, to that, right? Um, and I don't know that Biden is the person there. I'm going to stop. Sorry, my dog is freaking out. As you point out in Canada, these are difficult conversations. 1848, when Canadians got responsible government, right? What's the first thing they did after we had moved parliament to Montreal? They torched parliament over the rebellion reparations bill because the Anglo mob was incensed about having to pay for these Francos that had damage done to their property. And they would have lynched the governor general, Lord Elgin, if they could have gotten their hands on him. So you're right that I think we got to be careful as um, hiding behind the smug Canadian veneer and it could never happen here. Now, of course, that is 150 years ago, but you would think, you know, looking at the U.S., given the sort of violence that we've seen in the U.S., political violence, you know, we would have hoped the 21st century would have left that, uh, that behind. But I think it's a testament also that U.S. institutions are not serving the interests of many Americans, or at least are perceived as not serving the interests of individual Americans and many American communities, regardless of ideologically, whether that's on the left and on the right. And that irrespective of Democrats or Republicans, you've both lived in the US. You know that, you know, my perception is both parties pull the wool over people's eyes. And this is a country that is governed in the interests of elites. It just depends on sort of which side of the elite you're on. This is classic Jeffersonian politics. It's let's keep the people out of politics. And US institutions were set up to keep the people out of politics. Now, Paul might sort of disagree with me on this and he will know this sort of much better than I would. But sort of that's my perception of what's really happening here. There's this fundamental frustration with democratic institutions that are not serving the interests of the people. Well, in a way it was serving the interests of the people. It was serving the interests of the people that invaded the Capitol uh, who then didn't have accountability. They weren't chucked out. Um, uh, those are the people whose um, uh, interests were in the mind of the law enforcement, it seems to me. Um, but I liked your idea about these analogies, where we're supposed to situate ourselves in the midst of these events. And, you know, you invoked an analogy, but you saw a bunch of other analogies that were invoked on the Senate floor, like Senator Cory Booker compared the day's events to the War of 1812, where forces attacking the Capitol were waving the flags of the king, while the recently cleared invaders from the Senate floor were waving Trump flags. And then you had Michael Bennett, the senator from Colorado, compared the day's events to the fall of the Roman Republic with armed gangs marauding through the streets. Uh, you know, George W. Bush called it, it said, you know, um, uh, this is how things are done in a banana republic. So you see these people that are reaching out, politicians and pundits, for um, a framing, for a way to situate this moment in time and space. The German push keeps coming up again, all these attempts in Weimar Germany, these gangs to roll in and overthrow the government by four citizens. Um, these are the thoughts that are going to frame actions going forward. These are the analogies that are going to set the pattern going forward, in my view. Culture is more important than politics at this moment. Okay. I, so just to sort of respond to some of what Christian had been saying, right, the, I, I think there is a sense that people are feeling left behind, but I think we also have to ask ourselves what the sort of proper solutions are, right? And there's this sense that 
you know, rather than reaching out to a party that's going to sort of solve problems, whether it's people who are feeling behind on the left and the right, that there's an increasing sense among Americans of, of negative partisanship, right? That, that there's a fear of what the other side is going to do when they come in. And it doesn't really sort of uh, give itself over to any sort of a solution that's going to allow people to feel more secure in, in their place in American society, right? So whether that's, uh, you know, the result of sort of American elite government, which has, you know, become increasingly less elite, right? When we talk about sort of uh, Jeffersonian or Madisonian government, there have been lots of sort of populist changes to American government over time, which limit that effect. Um, but what are, what's being delivered and are people sort of clear-minded about what the two different parties are offering as solutions to the malaise that Americans may feel? Thank you, everyone. We've covered a lot of ground already in our conversation, but now I have to ask, we've been seeing a lot of words and turns of phrase like domestic terrorism and sedition being used quite readily in the media. I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether the storming of the Capitol was an act of domestic terrorism, and did the president and his followers actually commit sedition? What are your thoughts? Well, maybe I'll start. I, I can tell you a little bit about sedition. It's a federal crime. Uh, sedition is any conspiracy to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States. So that includes preventing, hindering, or delaying the execution of any law of the United States or seizing, taking, or possessing any property of the United States. Usually just advocating for the use of force doesn't qualify. Um, that's uh, protected speech under the First Amendment of the Constitution. Um, but what the mob did in the Capitol went further than that. It seemed to be doing, um, trying to prevent the government from functioning. So there is likely um, uh, an argument that a federal crime of sedition uh, was committed. Um, maybe I'll stop there and talk about Trump's potential responsibility after we hear from the others, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean in terms of terrorism, it's, it's, I mean, if it's been an ongoing debate in the terrorism studies world, um, terrorism Twitter, as, as, they, as they call it. Um, but I, I do think, according to the FBI's definition uh, of, you know, uh, acts that violate criminal laws that are intended to, you know, influence civilian populations or, or influence policy, um, it kind of fits to the T. Um, I, I don't know, I've kind of stayed quiet on the debate partly because I don't know if expanding the use of terrorism to include more and more actions is particularly wise. Um, I think other words are probably more useful, but I, I do think from an optics point of view, people have just been, uh, a little angry, I guess, that it's, you know, uh, we're so quick to label terrorism for certain kinds of individuals, whereas um, for for events like this, we're much more kind of cagey about it and, and much more nuanced about it. Um, so I think I, I, under, I understand the kind of push for, you know, equal application, but at the same time, um, it's not really a net that I want to see expanded to kind of include more and more event, more and more activities. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. But I do, if, you, if we just want to focus on the definition, you know, used by the U.S., I think it fits quite, quite neatly. I mean, the problem with terrorism and sedition is almost the same. These are laws that are amorphous and broad, and they're often used to stifle dissent yeah. uh, abroad, especially. So, you know, sedition, for example, was used by southern states uh, against people that were trying to um, have more uh, black involvement in politics, uh, uh, you know, during the Reconstruction era. Um, sedition is often being used to try to put down um, uh, communist organization uh, around the, um, uh, the, the mid uh, uh, 20th century. Uh, so it has a terrible history. And if it were applied here, um, beyond just the application of the law, it fits into a larger history of the misuse of this uh, broad crime uh, in the United States. So I'm not so keen to see it used in this situation either. All right, do we have any further comments? Well, when you charge someone, you always need to have a reasonable prospect of, 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 of subsequently actually winning your case, right? You have, of, of being able to prosecute successfully. So, um, you know, I'd be interested in having Ashwini and, uh, and Noor perhaps also weigh in, uh, Amar as well, that the, I mean, this is often why 
there's reticence in terms of charging people with terrorism when you have a much easier charge, right? When they kill someone, just charge them with homicide because we prosecute hundreds or thousands of homicide cases in the U.S. a year. We know how to prosecute homicide. Still, I think, you know, we have more terrorism cases, but there's still not a whole lot of precedent. So all of these cases always still become a bit sort of challenging for the prosecution about how exactly are the judges going to handle, for instance, the evidence and so forth. So if we now start charging people with sedition, I think there'll be real reticence, um, I suspect, in the Justice Department, giving the political history, there'll be reticence by the prosecutors. They're going to look at the evidence and go, oh, my word, how are we actually going to try to bring this before court and how are we going to get a successful prosecution? But then you have to weigh that also with the public interest, that there's a real public interest here because if you don't set a strong deterrent, I mean, the ultimately strongest possible deterrent you can think of in a democracy, that this can never happen again. If we simply hide behind, you know, we have, like, we're going to need to work with the legal tools that we have at our disposal. So I'd love to hear from the others where they think, how do we set that deterrent? Um, because it's going to have to be through criminal justice. The problem is not um, insufficiency of legal tools. It's too much legal tools, too many legal tools with too broad of a definition. So for example, for the capital um, mob that went in there, there's destruction of federal property, there's assaults. We saw all sorts of videos of all sorts of uh, just basic crimes being committed, assaultative property damage, federal crimes, state crime, everything like this is being done. Um, we could reach for sedition as a possibility, and that might be done in order to loop the, uh, President Trump into the mix because of the speech that he delivered. Sedition usually has to do with speech, um, even though it's defined in such a way that it seems to uh, focus on force. It's really about a conspiracy to um, undermine uh, uh, the government, um, and that seems to apply, except like what you're saying, Christian, if you're to prove the elements of the crime of sedition, I doubt that Trump spoke in specific enough terms to actually be found culpable um, uh, of um, sedition uh, in the way that he made allusions. He never actually said, break into the Capitol, stop the process, commit these other crimes. He didn't go that far. So I, I think it might be tricky to make the case. I can just jump in. Um, so, so as of today, um, from what I saw this morning, there have been 82 arrests uh, related to kind of what happened at the Capitol. The vast majority of them have been curfew related. <laughs> and um, uh, there's been a few on weapons charges and things like that, but there's been nothing in terms of terrorism or sedition or what, 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 you know what that looks like. Um, in terms of deterrence, I think, I mean, that's a, that's a huge kind of, a uh, hugely important thing to discuss. I don't know if it's all law enforcement related though. I mean, for example, there's an Instagram page floating around where uh, they've taken all the selfies that were taken um, at, at the Capitol building and have started to basically name these people, right? And and uh, and uh, people have started to lose their jobs. These, uh, as soon as they're named, they've been sent to their employers and then the employer puts out a tweet saying, this person is now no longer working with us. Um, and so there's been all these other kind of non-law enforcement consequences um, that, have, that have started to pop up about, for people who've attended the rally or uh, stormed the Capitol. Um, and so I think there's the law enforcement deterrence for sure, which I'm not sure what that looks like. Arrests are one thing, but I don't think uh, prosecutors are gonna wanna get into long drawn out year long cases about terrorism that, that uh, may not really go anywhere. Um, whereas there's been these other kind of non-law enforcement cultural responses or social media uh, activist responses um, that have had pretty devastating consequences for some of these people. I mean, they've lost their jobs and livelihood. Their faces are public. They've been retweeted thousands of times. And so um, there's kind of these societal consequences that are that are very much part of this also, which has started to pop up. So I think just to jump in quickly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have sort of mixed feelings about Twitter justice um, because I think it's inaccurate. It's maybe often actually unjustified, um, but, but I think there's actually something really special about the kind of symbolic deterrence that state-sanctioned punishment carries, right? So, um, so I, I take this to be partly what Christian is alluding to. Um, there is something about naming some of these crimes as sedition, right? Naming them as saying, it isn't just that you destroyed property, it's that you actually sought to overthrow or undermine the authority of the government, right? Um, and I think that's really balanced by, by the likelihood of success. 
or is this going to get mired in years and then sort of arcane legal debates, et cetera. And then if it fails, actually all of that symbolic deterrence, you just was counterproductive, right? Um, so I think these are really sort of difficult questions. And I think it's partly because, um, and here I would defer to Noah, but you know, criminal justice isn't simply about a crime is committed and the state you know, punished it, but it's actually also, it, it has this sort of huge societal expressive function. Um, and I think in this case, it's sort of unclear what um, invoking some of these labels would actually achieve, right? So, I, I, I've, so I'm a bit torn because on the one hand, I think it's really important to name these things as they are, irrespective of the likelihood of success. But I'm also aware that if you name it as something and it fails, then actually um, you've communicated the wrong set of values, I think. Yeah, so we've been talking about sort of deterrence at the level of the, the individuals, right? But I, I think it's also worth thinking about what deterrence means from the top, right? So to the extent that the president of the United States incited this, so how do you deter that sort of behavior, right? When you have the president whipping up his supporters in this way, there's some sincere belief among some of those supporters that something, you know, extremely illegal that undermines democracy is happening and they're responding to that. So, you know, they may even expect that these sort of legal consequences might flow from that. Right. So really, the turns has to come from the fact that you want to prevent elites from engaging in this sort of rhetoric that's going to, you know, lead to this sort of behavior. Right. You have Rush Limbaugh saying, well, it's a good thing that, uh, you know, we have people out there who have the mindset of Patrick Henry. Right. That they're willing to give up their lives and their liberty to protect American democracy. Right. That's the mindset here. And so there needs to also be sort of a an attempt to deter elites like Donald Trump from engaging in the kind of rhetoric that are going to lead, because otherwise I think the sort of micro level deterrence for the individuals is going to have a limited effect here. And what we've seen is that the systems within the US constitution are in my view, woefully insufficient to constrain a president. Executive power is not properly constrained in the United States. It's been accumulated uh, over five or six different presidents since Richard Nixon, uh, including the democratic ones like Barack Obama that were expanding their executive power and cutting down the checks and balances on that power. And no one's done so as thoroughly as Donald Trump has. You had Rudy Giuliani, I think it was, who was arguing that Trump could shoot somebody uh, in downtown New York City and not be prosecuted for it. And there are immunities uh, for prosecution put on sitting presidents and also when they leave office, they're immune from civil responsibility for their time in office, but they're not immune from criminal responsibility, from criminal acts that they committed while in office. So there would be a potential to prosecute Donald Trump for criminal sedition or some other crimes uh, once he leaves office. And that's what I've seen in the news is that this is... Um, uh, the, re the reporting is saying this was one of the reasons that he came out and gave that speech after to say that there's now going to be a peaceful transition of power because he's worried about criminal accountability at the federal level. Uh, uh, and even if he tries to pardon himself, there's no telling that that's ever going to work. The courts may not accept that argument. And it's also worth noting, right, that the sort of proper avenue for dealing with political crimes by presidents is impeachment, right? So as the discussions of impeachment are going on, it's not a lot of the conversation is going to be, well, is there enough time to actually have a trial? But it does sort of make a statement about this is not behavior that is acceptable. This is an abuse of power. Uh, and, and this is uh, yes, not, not ways that uh, it's acceptable for presidents to act. Some of the, um, uh, um, some um, Congress people and senators are also talking about invoking the 25th Amendment, saying that Trump is no longer capable of, uh, of being the president. Uh, that's usually for, you know, like a health problem, like Reagan was shot and was he, what was going to happen if he died and those kinds of things. Should we hand power to the vice president? That's less likely to succeed an impeachment. You need a higher percentage of the House so usually you need Congress for impeachment. You'd need 50% of Congress to impeach, then two thirds of the Senate to convict. And that would remove the president for using the 25th amendment. What you need is two thirds of Congress, then two thirds of the Senate. But the one advantage is that if you use the 25th amendment, once you have um, the process in place, the president is removed until he responds. 
So that may get us to the end of the Trump term if this was able to be used, but you also need half of his cabinet to be involved in the process and Mike Pence to be on board. So there's a bunch of hurdles that make it difficult to invoke the 25th Amendment, but it could put him out of commission for the next two weeks uh, so they couldn't do more damage. And with that, are we expecting more damage forthcoming? I mean, there's some chatter in the online space about uh, more events happening on the 17th and on the 20th. Um, I suspect the security this time around will not be so flimsy. So we'll see if that kind of um, goes anywhere. Uh, I mean, part of the culture of these movements, of course, is that, you know, blue lives matter. And so they're not going to. So I think they're a bit if you look at some of the chatter afterwards, they were quite um, at least some sectors of it were quite upset that the police officer died, you know, that, that there was violence against cops and things like that. And so there's always this tension in some of these movements of, oh, the cops are traitors. They're trying to stop us from saving the Republic, but also, oh, there's, a, you know, you shouldn't attack them. You shouldn't do anything against them. Um, one thing I do want to talk about quickly before, before we go uh, is the elephant in the room of the pandemic, right? And I think that mm-hmm that um, we don't want to downplay the significance of that kind of broader context for how this message, uh, particularly of Trump's message and and um, some of this other uh, conspiratorializing, I guess, actually resonated with some of these individuals. We saw a drastic spike in, in activity after March in QAnon circles, militia circles, uh, boogaloo movements, uh, hate speech, uh, and, and, and things like that. And so everything kind of... Um, all the bad things are on the rise. <laughs> and so it, it kind of all culminated in these kinds of events that, that we saw on the 6th. But um, it is the, the kind of financial consequences, the mental health consequences, the social psychological consequences of the pandemic uh, and lockdown and quarantine um, are also kind of an important part of the backdrop of, of what we're seeing in terms of the rise of violence. So I think, I think that unfortunately, is going to continue past uh, the inauguration into Biden's administration. Um, and uh, I think we're in for more tense situations, I think, so, for the next couple of years. So with that, I wonder what lies ahead for the Biden administration in terms of healing the nation, if you will, and uniting the people. Christian talked with us the other day about the inward turn Biden will likely take moving forward. And perhaps, Christian, you can start us off again today about What's ahead for the Biden administration domestically and perhaps with foreign policy in mind as well in the wake of this crisis? I'll be brief so everyone else can get a word in uh, too. But my sense is that Biden already had a very ambitious domestic agenda. And this massively complicates the domestic front, of course, for him. And there's only so much bandwidth in Washington. And so the more bandwidth is consumed by domestic preoccupations, the less bandwidth there is to invest in international issues. So I think this euphoria about a Biden election and multilateralism is back and so forth. I think on the one hand, there's not going to be the bandwidth and time really to invest thoroughly in genuine multilateralism. And so I think when I think Biden says, you know, U.S. leadership is back, that's what he means. Because if we can't have time to deal with allies and all sorts of interest groups and coalitions. We're just going to do what Americans have always done. We'll be unilateral. So I think the it's bad news for Canada, given that the U.S. is our most important strategic ally, but the Americans are just preoccupied with themselves and if there's political and economic instability. And I think it's also bad news for interests more broadly international in terms of multilateralism um, and uh, sort of this, this, this euphoria about Biden, I think, uh, will be disappointed on many fronts um, uh, as a result of what's happened in Washington in terms of the international agenda that many people are hoping for. Um, just a quick follow up. I think, um, you know, I think the, the world is not necessarily waiting for U.S. leadership, maybe as the way it once was. Um, so I think uh, we might we might have the U.S. actually acting in a more multilateral way because it lacks the uh, resources and a receptive audience in which to act unilaterally. Right. So actually, I think. Um, the fact that the, the Biden administration might be preoccupied with domestic issues might not be such a terrible thing globally, because at least what we don't have is a president who is actively and eagerly trying to disrupt multilateral efforts. Right. Um, but I do think um, I don't think Europe has been waiting for the U.S. to return to its leadership position. Um, so I think that ship has sailed. And, 
And, you know, how that actually ends up looking is, is obviously, I think, a matter of speculation. But, um, but I would be actually a bit more optimistic about multilateralism. Um, I think the U.S. will have to be more of a team player now um, than it's had to have been in the past. Amarnath, Noah, Paul. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think on the international stage, uh, as Christian said, it'll be a largely a process of healing, and that'll be welcomed, I think, for the most part. Um, but domestically, I'm, I'm more concerned domestically because what we saw over the last four years was was what you know extremism researchers call kind of mainstreaming of extremist ideas and a kind of normalizing of conspiratorial thinking, um, and a kind of um, real kick in the face of social trust, right? And and, and so we saw a ma- decline in uh, trust in science, trust in medicine, trust in media, uh, trust in government, um, surprisingly coming from government itself. Um, and, and so a lot of the internal healing will need to happen as well to kind of rebuild the social trust um, over time. I mean, just I think there's a poll yesterday, if you believe in polls, uh, that 45% of Republicans supported the storming of the Capitol, right? And so that's kind of a problem right and 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 uh and so how do you kind of get past this um revolutionary spirit that kind of trump has stirred up um what what is covid going to look like what is what is the vaccine rollout going to look like what is economic rebuilding going to look like um uh and so all of that is biden's bigger challenge i think domestically to try to bridge this social polarization that trump has uh mainstreamed as kind of normal politics um, and then I think internationally that he's placed some good people um, from what I've seen in, in, in diplomatic positions that um, should handle that pretty well. But domestically, uh, for the next four years, I'm quite concerned because, I mean, we know study after study says, you know, the more you believe in these bizarre ideas, the less likely you are to vote, the less likely you are to vaccinate your kids, the less likely you are to volunteer, engage in civic uh, activities. And so... Um, as that ramps up, um, how do everyday people actually behave and, and contribute to the politics of the country? Um, so he's going to have to fix, deal with that somehow, which is a monumental effort, I think. Mm. I, I agree completely with what Amar was saying, right? So Joe Biden's sort of pitch to the American people is that I can bring people together, right? I can be the president of everyone. And yet there hasn't been much discussion of, well, how do you deal with this extreme polarization, this extreme negative partisanship? What's going to be the process for overcoming that? That seems like a prerequisite to uh, building bridges, to getting new sorts of policies passed. Uh, into even engaging internationally. Uh, I, I don't think that there's a clear plan there and I don't think that there's an easy answer for how to get that done. I, I think there's some hope in Biden's um, uh, environmental agenda. Uh, basically what he's, I think there's a chance that um, uh, he's gonna be able to kind of harness the tools of American capitalism. I'm not saying American capitalism is gonna save everything. I'm just saying that this is a unifying force among the left and the, it's also gonna be a unifying force among those states that are you know, um, North Dakota, um, these, these places, uh, Kentucky where there's coal. Uh, I think if the federal government throws large amounts of money at building the capacity to create environmental economy in some of these places, that he could potentially win over uh, some of the moderate Republicans and some of the base there. And just like Obamacare, once you have all of that federal money and resources at your disposal, it's very easy, very difficult to reject it after you've already begun to rely on it. So I think there's a chance of unifying the far left with quite an ambitious environmental agenda of um, making changes internationally by starting an arms race towards environmental technologies with China um, and having an environmental effect. But um, we'll see what happens. All right. So with all of that and the apparent monumental tasks that Biden has ahead of him, what's going to happen in your view moving forward with Trump and his followers? We we saw last night just after 7 p.m. that he sort of conceded and acknowledged that there would be a smooth transition of power. But I found it notable that he also told his supporters still that he knows they are disappointed, but their incredible journey is only just beginning. So what does that mean and what's next? Is there is this just a beginning? And at that, the beginning of what? I mean, I think, I think the problem is... Um particularly groups like QAnon, who I think we're prone to dismiss, but what QAnon adherents have done uh, or what QAnon ideology has done is actually seeped into quite a other more popular movements like militia movements and, and, and things like that. And so we're going to have to contend with 
that going forward. I've written quite a, a bit of uh, pieces about this where they actually, you know, they come to see him as this kind of savior in the White House, right? And, and a kind of um, that that he's fighting against this deep state cabal from the inside, that we had him, uh, that, that he needs our help, et cetera. And so with him leaving, I think, um, one, the movement could fracture and kind of dissipate, but I think much more likely is that they're going to take on the mantle themselves to say, now that we don't have this kind of ally in the White House, um, he's passed the torch to us to kind of lead this movement to actually um, fight fight back against the deep state. Um, and so that's going to be a, uh, a kind of bug light noise in the back of the Biden administration for the next four years, right, of, of what do you actually do with these people? Um, we don't know how large this movement is, uh, but, it, but it, at least if you trust uh, some of the online uh, chatter, it's hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps millions of people who kind of nibble at the edges of this broader ideology. And so um, what you do with them, I mean, I, I don't know what you do with them. I think uh, we're, we're nowhere equipped. Um, if you look at, you know, the terror, counterterrorism space or the counterextremism space, where the entire edifice is kind of built around helping young men. Right. We, 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 don't, we don't know what to do with 85 year old grandmas who go down Internet rabbit holes. Right. And, and so um, and that so that's going to be an ongoing problem of, of how do you talk to these people? How do you address these people um, to kind of bring them back into regular society or normal political conversation? But so that's going to be an ongoing challenge for sure. All right. Thank you, Ashwini. Can we hear from you? Yeah, I think just to um, follow up on what Amr said. Um, so so I think what's what's. Uh, disturbing, at least, is that this isn't sort of the actual just problem of polarization, right? So polarization, uh, polarization, if it was just polarization, well, then that's, you know, we have a breakdown of trust, we have a breakdown of, we have different values, you know, how can a democracy come together um, when, uh, when people have really different values, right? And so that's a sort of, uh, sort of longstanding problem in political philosophy about deliberative democracy it's hard to have deliberation with people who share different realities, right? And I think that's actually impossible, uh, or it's very difficult to know how you, um, how you have a discussion or deliberation or disagree as citizens with people who just have different, a different view of reality and their view of reality is non-falsifiable, right? So I think what's, what's disturbing about QAnon is even when the predictions fail, it doesn't matter because actually it's all just part of the conspiracy. Right. So so I think that's a really, as Amr said, I think that's like a really big challenge and I'm not really sure how that gets resolved. A big concern is the movement, but it's also the technologies that Trump has unleashed. So mm. the, the, the social media techniques that they've used, the use of polarization, the use of political violence, the use of this post fact kind of um, and those can be seized by any demagogue, whether from left or right. So I think that the moment is significant in the fact that he's unleashed all of these technologies that could transform politics and send it in a, in a scary direction. All right, Paul, Christian, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've learned that when it comes to Donald Trump, it's dangerous to, to make predictions. And the one thing that, that I feel like we can be pretty sure of is that Donald Trump will continue to exploit his very dedicated base for his own personal gain. And whether that looks like another presidential run in 2024 or some attempt at a media empire is, is I think, difficult to predict at this point. Christian. Uh, I think my simplistic take is that we've spent, the, the Republicans on the one hand, have spent over a decade demonizing Democrats, right? Democrats are framed as the enemy throughout the Obama administration. We got this time and again. And I think with Donald Trump, they went to reap what they ultimately sowed, right? This ultimate sort of division. But at the same time, I think there had been a sense... Um, you know, without in any way sound like an apologist for any of the protesters. But I think there's a sense on at least some of the extremist elements on the other side that they're being completely dismissed by Democrats as just village idiots. Um, and I think both sides are going to have to stop this sort of framing of the other side as kind of dispensing with large proportions of the electorate on both sides as simply people you can't possibly take serious. 
Um, and in a democracy, we have to find a way to reconcile our differences. And the U.S. being the only democracy in the world with four institutional veto players, the founding fathers always knew that this was going to be a fundamentally, profoundly difficult country to govern. And we see that to this day, the challenges that the founders had uh, when the republic came together um, continue to persist to this day and that the Americans can barely make do with the institutions that they have in terms of trying to overcome their differences. All right. And on that note, we're going to leave it there. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for this Washington Roundtable conversation right here on The Scoop at CFRC from Queen's University. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate your time and valuable insights. Thank you very much, Donna. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.